Alright, hey, hey y'all. Uh, today I'm going to move into Forget Foucault. This was written, uh, I guess released in 77, but would have been written the years uh, leading up to there. But before I start this one, it's there's, there's a quote I'd like to read from one of his interviews that was only published last year in 2017. Uh, let me just confirm that, actually, so I don't lie to you. Yeah, 2017, in uh, The Disappearance of Culture, which is just a collection of interviews. Uh, but this this passage, or this quote, is... um, I get a little bit suspicious of it because, you know, I don't want to say, you know, outright that it's could be fake, but th there are a number of fake... Baudrillard articles that have floated around the uh, cyber space and the editor one of the editors of this Richard Smith is like you know a top Baudrillard person however what makes me suspicious about the quote is just how perfect that is in a sense there's a detail made apparent in it that I find hard to believe wouldn't have come up anywhere else not in any of Baudrillard's cool memories or any of his other texts so it's for that reason I find it very hard to swallow because it's it's very telling of Foucault if so and it's very it, it very much serves the purposes of Baudrillard's text forget Foucault and it, uh, it goes as follows here. So, Baudrillard says on, of Forget Foucault, The only person to react well at first was Foucault himself. He read my article. We talked about it here for three hours, or we talked about it for three hours. He informed me that he wanted to respond to it. As a result, I withdrew my article from circulation, awaiting that response with the possible idea of our text being published together. But after a month, Foucault told me, I don't want to respond, do what you want with it. So I published it as a small book, and then everything changed dramatically. Foucault, who had dealt very fairly with all this so far, suddenly became furious. The clearly provocative title, a title much more provocative than the text itself, was interpreted as, a, as an attack on Foucault's intellectual power, which was enormous. I was, in a way, quarantined, and I'm still suffering the consequences. Now that that is really interesting because Baudrillard kind of elaborates on that moment or that having happened to him. Which and there's a, there's another funny moment when uh, at, when Baudrillard was asked why he uh, never tried to teach at the University of Paris, to which he just laughed and said, "Are you kidding? Like they would Pierre Bourdieu would never have allowed me in there." And, you know, the hardcore Foucaultians thought Baudrillard was just a joke. So, uh, they, there was no, no place for him there. But, Baudrillard takes that to be rather ironic, given that Foucault, the thinker of power in very many ways, uh, for him to use that power in such a way, is it, incredibly ironic for Baudrillard. And I, I'm bringing this up because it 
lays the foundation for what Baudrillard is trying to do in Forget Foucault, notably point to the ways in which Foucault's project is an extension of the same kind of discursive power relations that he describes, very much in the same vein that he thinks that psychoanalysis, you know, isn't as much of a, um, I guess, critique of the ills of culture as one that places them on humans, or that Marxism isn't so much a critique of capitalism, capitalism as an extension of it. Uh, in very much the same way, Baudrillard thinks that Foucault is doing something similar. However, Foucault, Baudrillard has a lot of respect for Foucault, and in that last passage I just read, Baudrillard saying that Foucault's intellectual power was enormous is very telling. There's no point when Baudrillard doesn't take Foucault seriously, and he really treads carefully. So, like he said in that passage, this text is, the title is much more provocative than the text itself. And it's really a more of a challenge to Foucault's disciples than it is to Foucault himself. But with on that note, I think it's time we should just jump right into it. So the opening words are very much an homage to Foucault. Baudrillard writes that Foucault's writing is perfect in that the very movement of the text gives an admirable account of what it proposes. No one, on one hand, a powerful generating spiral that is no longer despotic architecture but affiliation on a bim, coil and strophe without our origin, without catastrophe either, unfolding ever more widely and rigorously, but, on the other hand, an interstitial flowing of power that seeps through the whole porous network of the social, the mental, and of bodies, infinitesimally modulating the technologies of power, where the relations of power and seduction are inextricably entangled. All this reads directly in Foucault's discourse, which is also a discourse of power. It flows, it invests, and saturates the entire space it opens. So what is Baudrillard doing here, other than just carefully selecting, uh, not performing as much of an exegesis, but being rather selective in his reading of Foucault. Because there is no singular Foucault. It would, it's difficult to categorize him, and this is, you know, a trope that is very common for Foucaultian type scholars. We don't know where to put him, right? Does he go on the history bookshelf? Does he belong in the philosophy bookshelf? You know, political science, sociology, where, where, where he, he can really go anywhere. Which is what makes Baudrillard nervous, in a sense. Which is why, in a, by Baudrillard saying that Foucault's writing is perfect, is not as much of a compliment as it is the expression of a certain fear. Where things, ultimately, Baudrillard's entire oeuvre is against the idea of things reaching a sort of perfection, because such a thing would mean total operativity, total functionality, which, of course, for him would be inevitably oppressive in some form or other. So when 
Foucault is placed on a pedestal, that, you know, makes Baudrillard um, clearly nervous. So in, in short, for Baudrillard, Foucault's discourse is a mirror of the powers it describes. It is there that its strength and its seduction lie, and not at all in its truth index, which is only its litmotiv. These procedures of truth are of no importance, for Foucault's discourse is no truer than any other. And this is um, a point of contention, not what Baudrillard is saying, but that element of Foucault where there have been questions raised about the validity of Foucault's uh, historical analysis. So, for the most part, those people that read Foucault, especially the stuff that treads away from, or even actually through all of his texts, he is a very heavy citer. Um, he relies heavily on archival texts that really provide a foundation for his arguments and really propel his arguments into new, uh, you know, un untraversed territory. But in that sense, people have taken him to task on the, not so much the validity, but perhaps the narrowness of his readings of certain texts. So how can we read Linnaeus in such a way as to think about a system or a taxonomia or an order of things? Is it because Foucault, in a sense, went in with a certain idea and saw the points which affirmed that idea and extracted it from that? So rather than just leveling that kind of criticism against him here, which other people have done, Baudrillard doesn't want to say that, no, Foucault simply leveled a, an incorrect reading. He, Baudrillard wants to resist saying that, because that would imply, of course, that there is the correct reading, and with enough analytic rigor, you can essentially get to the, the fundamental truth under, that lies underneath every text, or that is made manifest in any, any text which is to totally ridiculous for, for uh, Baudrillard. So when, when he says that these procedures of truth are of no importance, for Foucault's discourse is no truer than any other, all that Baudrillard is saying is that no matter how historically charged Foucault's work is, no matter how analytically clear, no matter how precise his work can be, Baudrillard wants to say that we can never assume that there has been this, you know, great breakthrough, this great stride towards truth, revealing the truth in history. And in one of the other um, talks I did here with, with Alex on um, the archaeology of knowledge, he made the point, Alex did, that um, we can't think of the development of the prison of psychiatry of the uh, mental asylum as being almost a necessary consequence to a very strict order or teleological order of things or, or progression of things, but that these things came about rather arbitrarily. Which, in my reading of Foucault, I didn't necessarily think of it in that way, but it really gave me, it was kind of that light bulb moment, like, wow, of course. So, the idea then 
that Foucault was himself aware of this very procedure or this very possibility of replicating the same discursive power relations that he describes and wanted to try to, you know, develop kind of, uh, try to subvert is very present here, or very present in Foucault. He's very much aware of that, and Baudrillard acknowledges that when he says that, I secretly believe that it, Foucault's uh, discourse of truth, has no illusions about the effect of truth it produces. That, by the way, is what is missing in those who follow in Foucault's footsteps and pass right by this mythic arrangement to end up with the truth, nothing but the truth. Not that, so, Baudrillard believes that it, those people that don't take Foucault's discourse is just another idea amongst many, but kind of place it in this transcendental position. And what what is really striking about this text is that, you know, ri- being written in the mid-70s, Foucault was only, you know, he had just released, he would have just released Discipline and Punish, he would have had six or so books before that. And then you have this guy, you know, F- Foucault in, in very many ways was God at that point, saying like, no, we can't approach him in that way, lest he be subsumed by the very system of power that, you know, we're trying to use him to get out of. Which is a critique that was, I think, way ahead of its time. I'm not familiar with many other critiques of Foucault at that time. I know Deleuze had a a little piece um, in response to the history of sexuality, but not to this extent, not quite as polemical as this. So now we can start to get at a little bit more of the um, specifics, rather than looking at the methodological type critique that, that Baudrillard levels. So one of the first real specific, without being all that specific, things that Baudrillard addresses is the question of power. So Baudrillard, Baudrillard asks flat out, but if Foucault spoke so well of power to us, is it only because power is dead? Is it because power doesn't actually exist? Which is a profound charge, and it's one that... And I've... <laughs> this is a quote I've been looking for. It's something I read about a year ago, a year and a half ago, and I cannot find it. I think it was in one of Foucault's lectures where he says that you know, we must remember that power does not exist. It was. It would have been after um, Baudrillard wrote this, I, I believe. You know, I'm saying this, but I've been trying desperately to find this quote, and I haven't been able to do it. But this is something that Foucault eventually acknowledged. But, however, I digress. So, Baudrillard's criticism is that if power is everywhere, then surely it is nowhere. How can you describe something that, that exists everywhere? Describing fish, uh, water to fish. And in that way, we would enter, we could, we could propose a thought experiment and ask the question, to what extent can something be disseminated before it ceases to exist? And that is 
in many ways, thinking about hyperreality and the media and simulation, the uh, core of Baudrillard's project is just assuming that once things when when things are proliferated to such an extent, they disappear. They no longer cease to have a kind of tangency, tangibility. They disappear into the void, right? Into the mediascape, into cyberspace, or whatever. So for um, Baudrillard, he sees in Foucault, rather than an acknowledgement of power's dissipation, he sees just almost a teleological sequence through, through Foucault's genealogy. So he says, for, Foucault, for him, Foucault, the political has no end, but only metamorphoses from the despotic to the disciplinary, and at this level to the microcellular, according to the same processes belonging to the physical and biological sciences. Now this is all something that happened to power. It just underwent phases. It simply adapted and accommodated, you know, going from the power of a certain king or a monarch, where in which case there was a single locus of power, what we began to see, of course, or that the proper term would have been sovereign power, um, is then the kind of democratization of power, if you will, entering this phase of uh, capillary functions. But for Baudrillard, that is patently absurd to think that such a process would have occurred. Because if there was such a thing as power, that power was always capillary. That power was always something that was uh, formed, you know, a spider web, right? It was just a mesh. In which case, anyone could hold on to it which is an important idea, and it's, a, it's an important one that really sets Baudrillard apart from something like Marx's thought, or in this case Foucault's thought, where there is a tendency to think about power as being located, thinking about power as having a certain locus, and that we then, the people then operate under the aegis of said power, or under the aegis of said, lo, uh, said locus of power. So, all that Baudrillard is doing here is just saying to Kind of saying to Foucault that, okay, if you have this thesis of power, how can you justify its being able to adapt in such a way, unless, of course, it has always occupied this kind of capillary function or this microcellular function, in which case, precisely because of its dilution, being diluted, I like making up words, uh, it essentially disappears. So this idea extends beyond the domain of power to uh, sexuality for, for Baudrillard, where he asks almost the exact same question. What if Foucault wrote so well of sexuality precisely because it, it was in the process of disappearing? I would go so far as to say that it already had disappeared, but if we were to give a rather vulgar example and think about this in terms of very, very literally, uh, in the case of pornography, for Baudrillard, Pornography is not the effacement of sexuality. Rather, it is the disappearance of sexuality through its proliferation, or through its not being erased, through its being put to the nth power. So, it is in that capacity that, that Foucault, or Baudrillard, really questions the strength of, of Foucault's project. 
So when, in the order of things, this argument would, would extend onto that, when Foucault writes about, at the very end, when man being washed into the sea, for Baudrillard, and this is something that I've, in my research, I'm particularly interested in, is how do we consolidate there ever having been this notion of the human? Does Foucault's calling attention to the human not identify it, but actually create it, in a sense? And by doing that, this whole thesis of reversibility, how does Foucault calling attention to the end of man, or the human, actually mark its birth? And of course we can enter a certain discussion of the virtual, in a sense, simulation, where it is not so much as though man's face on the shore is washed away by the sea, but that it's you know, cast into the realm of, the sim of simulation or of the virtual where it can never be washed away, where it is solidified, crystallized in its image. So it is, it is in this way that forces, forces, that makes Baudrillard think that Foucault cannot trace this new spiral of, se of sexual simulation in which sex finds a second existence and takes on the fascination of a lost frame of reference. And this is nothing but the coherence lent by a given configuration to the myth of the unconscious. Now this is all a symptom of Foucault's being caught within the classic formula of sex, which retroactively affirms there having been this idea of sexuality at one point that, had, that was you know, um, clear, that was homogenous, that was universal in a sense. Whereas Baudrillard, thinking about sex in terms of simulation, thinks about it as, you know, always having been this thing that was open to change, the thing that resisted necessarily classification, that, that resisted identification. So, Baudrillard's real concern here is that in Foucault's discourse, because there is the lack of recognition of the kind of multifaceted approach that, or the multifaceted character that sex can assume, especially in relation to the era of pornography, what he is doing is affirming there having been this thing called sexuality that was singular, that was, I guess, unchanging. So it is in this way that Baud and Baudrillard writes that Foucault cannot tell us anything about the simulating machines that double each one of these original machines, about the great simulating mechanism which winds all these devices into a wider spiral, because Foucault's gaze is fixed upon the classic semiurgy of power and sex. So I think we can perhaps and of course, the second half of this book is an interview with um, Sylvain Lapringer, never pronounced that name right, uh, titled Forget Baudrillard. So I think we, we would do well to uh, you know, take Baudrillard to task on this point. But by calling out Foucault for not considering sexuality in terms of these, this, the simulating, or about the simulating machines, or in terms of the simulating machines, Baudrillard is suggesting, then, that there is a kind of reliance on some kind of original machine, kind of original uh, 
way of conducting sexuality. But in that sense, does Baudrillard himself rely so he by relying so heavily on these simulating machines, inadvertently promote the notion that there is such a thing as a non-simulating machine? Now that, of course, I don't think so. I think that you know, of course, it was all. There's always been simulation in a sense. But what is it about? these simulating machines and what form do they necessarily take because it's difficult not to simply locate that in, t in the contemporary episteme or the informa information age or the age of you know these computer technologies and stuff when we can see the proliferation of pornography via the internet or whatever so I believe that we would be doing Baudrillard a disservice if we were to just locate this idea of simulating machines within this framework, this technological framework, and instead were to think of it in terms of simulating being just um, part of the human condition, if you will, that, that kind of slippery term, but being something that's always already there. And in that sense, opening up the possibility of simulation preceding, you know, technology, which is where I believe many people misread Baudrillard, they, you know, they just want to think about it in terms of the media as it manifests itself today, when in fact this, this has been uh, going on for a while. So how is our, has our relationship to sexuality not been connected to some kind of biological function, this kind of ultimate referent, but has actually been, you know, a very discursive thing? And there's a point in Gender Trouble when Judith Butler says that you know, when we think of homosexuality, we should not be thinking of that as derivative from kind of an original, real way to engage in, you know, romantic relationships or sexual relations or whatever in the, in the heterosexual coupling, but rather we should understand that as being, we should only understand homosexuality as being a copy of a copy. So in that way, it opens up this analysis of sexuality as always already having been within the realm of the discursive and what I will very simplistically correlate with the realm of the um, simulation, which is to render those two things correlative is a bit risky, but I'll do it here. Hopefully you don't get too mad about that. So this, this extends on to discipline as well. So of that, of Foucault's idea of panopticism, which is something that Baudrillard took um, charge at in Symbolic Exchange and Death, uh, but here he kind of, he, he takes it a little further. He says that panopticism, and of the idea of transparence, transparency, is an obsolete theory. So he says that such a theory of control by means of a gaze that objectifies, even when it is pulverized into micro-devices, is passé. With the simulation device, we are no doubt as far from the strategy of transparency as the latter is from the immediate symbolic operation of punishment, which Foucault himself describes. So the former being the notion of transparency, or that, you know, uh, invisible locus of power, and the latter being... Um, that despotic form of punishment.
So, Baudrillard, to this point, Baudrillard simply says that he, Foucault fails to address the way that surveillance, if I, I, if I can use that term, manifests itself in the age of simulation or in the current revolution of the system. Which I don't know if it's a fair critique, just because if that wasn't on Foucault's mind, why would it be? Why would it have to be? But it is in a sense because how can you talk about power without talking about you know most basic way that people interact? That being you know these kind of simulated um, spaces or what I will locate within the technological epoch, uh, where power, of course, suffering a, a sort of ultimate dissemination sees its own diminishment and it's very repetitive at this point but it's a it's a point that Vaudrillard really wants to hit home of the history of sexuality uh, in which Foucault kind of dismantles the idea of the repressive hypothesis Vaudrillard says that of course that is not so much uh, a benevolent kind of liberatory, I guess, a theoretical project. Rather, repression is only a trap and an alibi to hide assigning an entire culture to the sexual interpretive. So what Foucault's project does is basically this. It substitutes a negative, reactive, and transcendental conception of power, which is founded on interdiction and law, for a positive, active and imminent conception and this is in fact essential so from this point Baudrillard turns his gaze towards Deleuze and Lyotard the Lyotard I have personally read nothing of aside from little snippets here and there so the hardcore Lyotardians out there I'm sorry if I if I mess this up but what he says of Deleuze and Lyotard there is uh, the, the notion of desire. So such a... Sorry, let me just read it. But there, instead of a lack of interdiction, one finds the deployment and the positive dissemination of flows and intensities, that is, in the... by undergoing a sort of recognition of one's wants in the form of desire, what have you, and in what way that can be mobilized uh, to allow for these flows, these intensities, these possibilities of becoming... So such a coincidence is not accidental. He says that it's simply that in Foucault, power takes the place of desire. It is there in the same way as desire in Deleuze and Lyotard, always already there, purged of all negativity, a network, a rhizome, a contigu contiguity diffracted ad infinitum. That is why there is no desire in Foucault. Its place is already taken. Looking at it the other way around, one one may wonder if, in the schizoid and libidinal theories, desire, or anything along that line, is not the anamorphosis of a certain kind of power, remaining under the sign of the same imminence, the same positivity, and the same machinery, which going, going every which way. Now this is, this is a difficult argument to kind of uh, trace, 
because thinking about History of Sexuality Volume 1, Foucault is very critical of the kind of expression of desire, right? He's very critical of the medical, um, kind of the medical discourses that arise that predict and then can um, conceal, identify, locate different forms of sexuality that don't subscribe to the dominant logic. So it's not as though Foucault is calling for this, you know, proliferation of sex or this crushing of the repressive uh, hypothesis, but he sees the risk actually being in, you know, the testimony, right? In the being able to give oneself up to the law of sexuality, right? In whatever form it would assume at that given time for that given person. So of that, you know, Foucault is very, is weary. He's weary of the possibility of that happening and that being just as oppressive. So it, it seems less like Foucault, uh, Baudrillard is leveling a critique of Foucault than he is affirming it. Because the History of Sexuality, Volume 1, would have come out before this book was released. But I believe Baudrillard would have written this first, or been in the process of writing this. So Foucault is just as critical of opening up these kind of discursive um, formulations of sexuality into these spheres that can then kind of uh, capture them, render them productive in a sense, render them oppressive. So the difference, and it's, it's a difference that's hard, it's, it's difficult to kind of locate, is that Baudrillard doesn't see there being such malevolence behind or there being a single point that takes up this sexual discourse or discourse around sexuality and then turns it back as a sort of oppressive uh, phenomenon or renders it oppressive. So it's in that way that Baudrillard is not ready to say, or that Baudrillard says that Foucault's project, being as capillary as it claims to be, is in fact a little bit too specific in its tracing of certain regimes of power and how they come about. For Baudrillard, he wants to think about this in terms of sexuality itself as being something you know, always already having been a simulation, by entering it into discourse in any capacity, by entering it into the domain of reality, by attaching it to a certain biological finality, or anything of that sort, is where he sees the issue lying. This is because sex, for Baudrillard, at its core, is produced as one produces a document, or as an actor is said to appear, se produire, in brackets, on stage, to produce is to force what belongs to another order, that of secrecy and seduction, to materialize. So there's no possibility for Baudrillard of sexuality entering, you know, the public domain, entering into um, being, or coming into being, without its being removed from its mystery, from its illusion, from its 
si simulated essence, if you will, which is a would seem like a contradiction contradiction in terms. And it is in that way that sex, even in Foucault's discourse, comes to take up this place of production. It comes to resemble a kind of productive entity, a thing that can be given a face, a thing that can be rendered productive if it if it is engaged in you know proper ways or ways that break out of the boundaries of um, the the repressive or oppressive systems of power and control. And in opposition to sex then stands seduction. Now seduction is an idea that we'll talk about more in the book, seduction, but it's here something that Baudrillard brings up. Now there, to kind of contextualize seduction, seduction takes over reversibility. Whereas up to this point, Foucault, uh, Baudrillard, I'm sorry I keep messing them up, Baudrillard's project was governed by the law of reversibility in a sense, or that was a key idea in his thought. And around this point, as we can see here, especially in seduction, reversibility gives way to seduction. Baudrillard continues that uh, seduction is that which is everywhere and always opposed to production. Seduction withdraws something from the visible order and so runs counter to production, whose project is to set everything up in a clear view, whether it be an object, a number, or a concept. So this speaks to the general cultural logic of um, revealing, of wanting to know, of making manifest, which is not dissimilar to what Foucault is essentially doing, where Baudrillard sees in Foucault a profound desire, albeit inadvertently, to make things apparent, to trace a sort of history, whether or not it's a history that was inevitable or is, a, is another question, but to trace a history nevertheless that doesn't so much get at the, you know, it doesn't so much challenge the forms of power that it seeks to unravel, but actually affirms a sort of secret base of power that is the desire to make things apparent, to bring things into light, and how that is in itself a form of oppression. So this general logic calls for, and this is how Baudrillard characterizes it, it calls for everything to be said, gathered, indexed, and registered. This is how sex appears in pornography, but this is more generally the project of, a, of our whole culture, whose natural condition is obscenity. So I don't want to spend too much time on seduction, because it's um, we'll deal with it more in uh, seduction itself, but there is something to interrogate about it. So what parameters are necessarily set forth for seduction? Because it's something that resists classification, it's something that resists identification, so how do we talk about it? Baudrillard has, sees no, <laughs> appears to show no restraint in talking about it, which is ironic. And it's something that maybe we have to you know, be a little bit critical of, but it's, it seems like it would change over time, especially thinking about Baudrillard in terms of the contemporary, thinking about him in terms of, you know, the thinker of the 20th century, it seems as though seduction has been overhauled in a sense. It seems as though seduction has kind of been suffering a sort of assault.
by these um, by these oppressive mechanisms, these simulating mechanisms. So, in what way then does sedu is seduction fragile? Is seduction susceptible to a sort of reevaluation or kind of re-territorialization that throws off this idea that seduction is always already present? So, even to I guess, utter these words, we enter in a slippery territory where we have, the only way to actually talk about it is to, in fact, talk about it. And then, are we just replicating that same, are we removing from seduction then its kind of transcendental uh, properties? I use the term transcendental because Baudrillard says it's always already there. It's something that cuts, is transhistorical. And in that sense, it is the secret logic to all systems, to all thought, to all organization. But at the same time, what use is there to talk about it? If it's always already there, and it cannot be conjured away, then what use is there in bringing it up and this is a this is a question i struggle with repeat like every day thinking about this and just making my head spin because it's as as soon as it enters though the domain of language it has been purged of its potential in a sense unless this is another trick employed by seduction to make us think that such a thing is possible but that is what Baudrillard is thinking about in terms of Foucault, where there is not a recognition of this idea of seduction, which is an odd idea as well, because why would anyone else think about this but except for Baudrillard? But anyways, it's this lack of recognition of the mystery, of the unknown, that Baudrillard sees lacking in Foucault's project, so by locating sex, even in Foucault, to the realm of sexuality in, in the terms of the body, what is he doing, and this is where Baudrillard has the, what I think the biggest problem with it, is that it's always in association with the, in, this is his word term, the orgastic function, or the uh, rendering, the, the sexual in this framework, has become strictly the actualization of a desire in a moment of pleasure. So this is diametrically opposed to seduction that relies on not so much the realization of a sort of desire, precisely because seduction wrests people away from their own wants and needs and renders them powerless, which is why seduction is so, is so radical for Baudrillard, precisely because it absolves all power. It neutralizes it precisely by this law of reversibility. So Baudrillard then says rather comically that ours is a culture of premature ejaculation where there's that obsession with the ejaculation or associating the immediate pleasure with sexuality, with seduction, with you know these true biological components of the human body that can be made productive, that can be realized, that can be uh, utilized as a form of 
counter-discourse or counter-insurgent act against oppression, when for Baudrillard that is simply feeding into the logic of this cultural, um, cultural logic of wanting to make things apparent, to bring things into being. So what do we open ourselves up to when we think about power in terms of its capillary functions? For Baudrillard, and this is a really interesting moment, especially in relation to like post-human studies, post-humanism, uh, with this turn in the discourse of power, at least how Foucault describes it, we see that what benefit there is over the old finalist dialectical or repressive theories in supposing a total positivity, a teleonomy, and a microphysics of power. But we must also see what we are getting into, a strange complicity with cybernetics, which challenge precisely the same earlier schemas. Foucault does not, for that matter, hide his affinity with Jacob Monod and recently Jacques Rouffier de la biologie et la culture. So the same can be said of Deleuze's molecular topology of desire, whose flows and connections will soon converge, if they have not already done so with genetic simulations, microcellular drifts, and the random facilitations sorry, of code manipulators. And this, I, this is something I work out in my work, kind of locating the uh, distinction between Baudrillard and Deleuze, of which the, between the two of them are, and they share a number of, uh, of affinities. There are a lot of points of difference, though, precisely because, you know, Deleuze's call to deterritorialize or whatever for Baudrillard is, would be very suspicious. There is a striking lack of critique, or just assume critique, because Baudrillard is so polemical, but analysis of Deleuze and, and Baudrillard's work here. He never got around to writing that book, but where I see that, you know, my Baudrillard mind conflicting with Deleuzean stuff is that trying to craft a place for oneself in the deterritorialize yourself imperative is not so much a challenge to the system as much as it proposes itself to be, but actually feeds into the very logic that uh, that Baudrillard is describing here. You know, the, it coming down to the individual that has a certain set of wants that can be mobilized, can be first understood, and then understood as subversive, and then mobilized. So it undergoes that procedure, which all ironically rely on a certain subject position that, thinking about a thousand plateaus, is something that Deleuze and Guattari are very clear in renouncing trying to get away from. So there's there's that, but that, that's for another another day. Delusions can take me to task on that one, I certainly hope you would. Any drive then towards consolidating power, or consolidating one's own being, rubs up against the logic of seduction, because it implies that such a thing cannot be reversed. And for that reason, uh, Baudrillard says that these, in his later work in Carnival and Cannibal, he says that these systems of power, these dominant schemes, 
are inevitably feed upon themselves and then they crash so this is why for Baudrillard things like totalitarianism would n never work in that and, and thinking back to symbolic exchange and death when thinking about the World Trade Centers he says it is because of their duality that they work so perfectly and you know we think of the United States as being the perfect example of this is kind of two-party system right if it was a one-party system it would crash in the case of in Baudrillard's case because there's no allowance of seduction to occur of, of reversibility as superficial or as cosmetic as we might think it to be there must still be room for it so but this is the same thing everything wants to be exchanged reversed or abolished in a cycle this is in fact why neither repression nor the unconscious exists reversibility is always already there so then seduction is stronger than power because it is a reversible and mortal process while power wants to be irreversible like value as well as cumulative and immortal like value so Foucault's project then for Baudrillard is that it unmasks all the final or causal illusions concerning power but he does not tell us anything concerning the simulacrum of power itself which is you know thinking about the history of the simulacrum something that we'll get into with uh, simulacrum simulation uh, it disturbs the, the idea that power if it is a simulacrum can be singularly located uh, consolidated in, in a certain at a certain point finite point when in fact that simply by trying to do such a project trying to proclaim there to be that realization of power it <laughs> ironically destabilizes that power precisely by giving it a face considering all of this moving into the last section of this text Baudrillard questions the role of revolution can there can such a, a magnificent event occur where for him you know he thinks about he thinks about Kafka where the Messiah come is, is one day late right the Messiah is that which we are always waiting for but never can arrive on time so Baudrillard asks are the are the Messiah and the revolution so insignificant that they must always arrive late like a projected shadow or a reality effect after the fact whereas things have not have never needed the Messiah or a revolution in order to take place and he continues revolution signifies only this that it has already taken place and that it had a meaning just before one day before but not anymore now when it comes it is to hide the fact that it is no longer meaningful in fact the revolution has already taken place now this is a not a totally radical idea like Badgeo thinks about revolution in that way where the most effective revolutions in to say to bastardize revolutions the most effective ones have been those that have only been identified as such retroactively it's difficult to know when change is occurring so it is in that way that Baudrillard only wants to think about it as such where there is change that occurs but we must be very weary when you know we try to 
mobilize it, we try to force it to come into being. Oh, I could, there must be a good analogy for that. Well, my brain's on sleep mode, I guess. I can't think of a good analogy, but how for, forcing someone to do something that they aren't ready for and then having it, you know, come back on the person that was trying to force it. I'm sure it's in a film somewhere. But I digress once again. For Baudrillard, however, all things come to an end in a redoubled simulation, a sign that a cycle is completed. When the reality effect, like the useless day after Messiah, starts uselessly duplicating the course of things, it is the sign that a recycle is ending in an interplay of simulacra, where everything is replayed before death, at which point everything falls over far behind the horizon of truth. So power is then no more held than a secret is extracted, for the secrecy of power is the same as that of the secret. It does not exist. So trying to give a narrative to something that has, you know, occurred in such a way as the Messiah does of the revolution, by doubling it in that sense, which is difficult to wrap your head around given the general thesis of challenging the, the, the notion of there being these loci of power, or this locus of power, how the same, how doubling effect can essentially have the same effect, can produce the same, what I will say, negative result. There was once a time, however, and this is one of those moments where Baudrillard romanticizes some kind of old age or whatever, which I don't enjoy so much, but he says that there was once a time when power allowed itself to be sacrificed according to the rules of this symbolic game, from which it cannot escape, a time when power possessed the ephemeral and mortal quality of what had to be sacrificed. So we are now at the point where no one exercises power or wants it anymore, not because of some historical or temperamental weakness, but because its secret has long been lost, and no one wants to take up the challenge any longer. And thinking again about symbolic exchange and death, all this derives from the suppression of death. This loss of a sort of symbolic order comes with, or is correlative to, the suppression of death. So power loses its singularity when, or its possibility, when there is that lack of attachment to the symbolic. Now what form that necessarily takes is difficult to illustrate we could it's it's difficult without just romanticizing as pre-capitalist notions of exchange or, or what have you but thinking about the sacrifice is one way to do that where the gods held a certain position of power and the person being sacrificed and the person sacrificing held a certain power and then again we we fall into the kind of capillary analysis where power is held by everyone. But what is different was a sort of, was how such a ceremony was, in the case of the sacrifice, was accepted. How it had it, a sort of ultimate role in that, of to which all people were kind of indoctrinated. Again, that's a really a bastardized way to think about you know, pre-capitalist societies, but this is, this is the only way I can make sense of this here. 
To which I wonder, though, if there has to be some kind of democratization or sort of general acceptance of an idea, how is it that it can't be taken up now? How is it that we can proclaim, as Baudrillard does, that power has undergone a sort of change, sort of shift? Because, you know, of course, power, earlier in the book, power never existed, and now all of a sudden, there was a time when power allowed itself to be sacrificed, you know, presupposing it having this essence. Just the nightmare of unraveling this. But if we suspend that part, if we were to think now of what allowed power to come into fruition in that age, I would think there would have to be some kind of acceptance of it as such, total acceptance, which makes me wonder why it can't necessarily come up now or in any other in any other capacity I'd be really curious to see, hear what other people have to say about that if anyone wants to take take that up I'm sure there's an easy answer I don't I really don't want to claim to know this stuff more than anyone else I'm just trying to deal with what I have here but really if anyone has anything but I'll, I'll continue now well actually I see here he says that when talk when one talks so much about power it's because it can no longer be found anywhere so i guess it's when when power doesn't have a face that it actually exists it's incredibly paradoxical as that sounds when it lies outside of the domain of sight which i think would hold with the general thesis of this book or this pamphlet this short very short book when it is out of that realm, which abides by a certain cultural logic of forcing things into being, then it retains its power. So he says that this is why, you know, leaders were killed when they lost that secret, that power had to be hidden. As soon as they, leaders proclaimed their power, really tried to, you know, take up this divine right of, of kings, for example, like, then they are killed. They, they, are, they are sacrificed in a sense to kind of return power to its to its slumber to, to make power invisible again. Because we full exertions of power are terrifying but they're also they're they rub up against the, the secret the secrets of the universe that that are made manifest in seduction or that are embodied by seduction and i think we are currently we currently try to convince ourselves that power is something that comes about and power is something that plays a uh, a key role in our lives because power is much easier to understand than seduction power can be identified and I think you know this is my own hypothesis thinking about contemporary politics today especially in the United States there's a profound desire on each side to see in the current president um, a kind of totalitarianism or a kind of hegemonic um, use of power or use of authority which is not so much 
stating a fact as it is trying to inject into our lives the semblance of power because with that we can then sacrifice it we can then say that politics still have meaning we can still we can then say that you know there is something still worth fighting for which in my heart of hearts i clearly think there is but it also that also abides by this same desire to render power visible to to bring it into being which is where it's rather oppressive but it's only when it retains that being because you can't challenge seduction at least not for Baudrillard here only when power is made to become can it then be challenged which is why there you know there's such calls for certain people to be cast as fascists because fascism in the 20th century you know according to Baudrillard even here is that um, fascist power is then the only form which was able to reenact the ritual prestige of death but most importantly here in an already posthumous and phony mode a mode of one upmanship and mise-en-scene in an aesthetic mode that was no longer truly sacrificial so there's no doubt then that fascism for example is the first obscene and pornographic form of desperate revival of political power and that was really a special event like there was no there's no denying that that was that that was you know an extreme form of power that had the, the worst some of the worst consequences to ever uh, be seen but there is a desire because of its kind of extreme manifestation there is a desire to equate things to that now because that is the ultimate vision version of power that we know in in recent history at least for you know Europeans but we use that as a sort of template we use that as a base from which to inscribe on others or on people that we believe are performing us you know trying to claim the law of power we inscribe that discourse onto them or that idea onto them so then we can convince ourselves that power is something that exists that power is something that hasn't disappeared that power is something that can be overthrown giving us this you know kind of comfort that we are still in a world that we can control so this is I think a good a good place to end and it's best to end I think here with what how Baudrillard ends the text he says that in any case power lures on us on and truth lures us on everything is in the lightning quick contradiction in which an entire cycle of accumulation of power or of truth comes to a close there is never any inversion or any subversion the cycle must be accomplished but can it can happen instantaneously it is death that is at stake in this contradiction so this this is where his book ends um, but the rest in at least in my version is uh, there's uh, an interview appended to it titled forget Baudrillard in which they don't actually talk about what that would mean to forget Baudrillard and I don't I might do this I it, doing interviews is difficult right because it's difficult to there's no like um, argument being traced out it's just these kind of aphoristic question and answers which 
it's difficult to present without just reading it. So I don't think I'll do that one, but I recommend people read it. It does clarify some, some points, especially some of the Deleuze stuff, or where Baudrillard sees a distinction between them, himself and, and Deleuze. But with that being said, you know, thank you for listening if you've made it this far. I'd be really curious to hear what other people have to say. I str I struggle greatly with this with this stuff. I try to I've really tried to make it accessible, um, but that isn't to say that I could necessarily talk about this in any more nuanced ways. I really want to show my humility. It's uh, this stuff is difficult, and I really don't want to claim to be someone that knows it like excellently. But on that note, thanks for listening, and I'll see you soon.